Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our series on the book of Ephesians. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy! Well, good morning, everybody here in the house, as well as those of you online. We're glad you're here. And today we're going to go into the second chapter of the New Testament book of Ephesians. Now, this book, as I've mentioned before, is actually a letter, a letter written by the Apostle Paul after, sometime after his third missionary journey. Now, a little bit of context, because context is very helpful. Paul was a devout Jewish man who had been born and raised in the city of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus uh, was part of the area of Asia Minor. uh, That would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, So being born in Tarsus is important for us to understand because that meant he was born in the Roman Empire, which meant he was a Roman citizen. And it it meant that even though he was raised to be a devout Jewish man... He was raised in a Gentile, a non-Jewish culture. So he was very familiar with the culture of Gentiles. Now, as an adult, at some point, he moved to Jerusalem, and he became a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group of people who uh, believed in a strict obedience to the laws of Judaism. Now, most of them were... were, um, uh, were entrepreneurs or tradespeople, but Paul himself was a maker of tents. That's why we call him a tent maker at times. And so the Pharisees, uh, as I said, were a group of people who believed in strict obedience to the laws of Judaism to the point where they sort of became uh, self-proclaimed police of the law. And so as a Pharisee, Paul was actually violently opposed to followers of Jesus. He he would go on trips to make sure they were arrested because they were followers of Jesus and not of Judaism. And so that all came to a head, though, when he was on the way to the town of Damascus. And he had a supernatural experience with Jesus, and he was converted to Christianity. And with that same devotion that he applied to his faith as a Jewish person, now he applied that same devotion to being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus called him, as he calls all of us, but he called him specifically to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentile world, which he obviously knew much about. Now, that led him to go on three extended missionary journeys into the Gentile areas of Greece and Asia Minor. And so I want to give you a little sense. We're going to put a map on the screen here. And so let's see if I can do this again. So uh, here we go. So down here in the right corner is Israel. In his first journey, he went to the island of Cyprus, which is here in the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, and then he went on up here into what is modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor there. That was his first missionary journey. His second missionary journey, he actually went back to his uh, hometown. Uh, so he went from Israel to his hometown, which was Tarsus. We see it right over here just uh, in what would be sort of uh, south eastern Turkey, and then he went all through Asia Minor, crossed over into Greece, 
went around here. He was in Athens and in Corinth, and he took the gospel there. And then on his third and final missionary journey, again, he left down here in the right-hand corner from Israel, went uh, across the Mediterranean Sea to Ephesus. Ephesus is a significant town in the first century. As you can see here, it's uh, in Western Asia Minor or Western Turkey. You can still go there today. You can see the ruins of Ephesus. It's on the uh, uh, coast of the Aegean Sea. And what's significant about Ephesus in the first century is this, is that it was on a major trade route. And so it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And being on a major trade route meant that people came through Ephesus by land and by sea. Now, now think this through. Before we had these little computers in our pockets, okay, uh, but before we had even landlines, the way information traveled predominantly was from person to person. And so if you were on a major trade route, you would be exposed to a great deal of people. And I, the scriptures don't tell us this, but, but Paul was, a, was an astute person and he was a study, a student of human behavior. And he realized, listen, if I'm on a major trade route where people are coming by land and by sea, I'm going to be able to tell a lot of people about Jesus. And I tell them about Jesus, and they become followers of Jesus, and then whenever they go back to Greece or to Rome or some other part of Syria or Damascus, wherever they go, they're going to take what they learned there. And so he stayed in Ephesus. Scripture tells us that. He stayed in there for a little over two years. Um, and then later on, when he has been arrested for preaching about Jesus, and he appeals actually all the way up uh, to the king of the Roman Empire, who was Caesar. When he appeals to Caesar, he actually is taken to Rome, and he's imprisoned there, and scholars believe that's where he wrote this letter years later from prison, and as I covered last week, in the first chapter, uh, you know, the big, the big picture of the book of Ephesus is that he wanted to build up the faith of those Christians in Ephesus and Asia Minor because these letters would be circulated and read and passed around in the local churches. He wanted to build up their faith, but he also wanted to give them practical theology so that they could be fully devoted followers for Jesus. Now, chapter one last week, I told you that Paul wrote to the Christians and he told them these things. And this is important because uh, he wanted them to understand how God had blessed them. And, and I shared this with you last week. I want you to understand how God has blessed you. And, and these are the things that Paul tells us in chapter 1. He tells us that we're chosen and adopted by God. He, he tells us that we are redeemed and forgiven by God. He tells us that we are sealed for eternity and guaranteed through the imposition of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives by God. Now in chapter 2, uh, of Ephesians, Paul wants us to understand that before we believed and started following Jesus, he, he's saying this to the, the Christ followers back in the first century, but every successive generation of Christ followers since then, that before they were blessed, before we were blessed, in all of these ways, we were dead, spiritually dead. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sinfulness, in our disobedience to God. So let me read the first five verses of chapter two. Paul writes, 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. So that last phrase is important. God made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So uh, let's look at what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins. Paul defines being spiritually dead in the following ways. Uh, this way, he says that you're dead in your trespasses when you're following the ways of the world instead of following the ways of Jesus. Think that one through. All right? In other words, disobeying the teachings of Jesus and God. And he goes on to say that, that being spiritually dead is not following God, not following the Messiah, Jesus. It's following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's another way of saying Satan or the devil. All right? You're, you're following his ways. And he goes on and he points out that spiritually dead people live to gratify their flesh or the, their bodily desires and thoughts. In other words, following our temptations and all the way into sin, okay? He says uh, in another letter, he sort of gives us a list of, of, of what it means to follow the flesh or our sinful nature. This is what he says. The desires of the sinful nature are sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like this. And when he concludes that passage, that's, that's from the fifth chapter of the letter to the Galatians. But when he concludes this, listen to the warning that he gives. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, that's pretty heavy. It's, it's pretty damning. And that should make us think about our lives. Because what he's telling us is that sin kills to not inherit the kingdom of God equals spiritual death. So going back to the book of Ephesians, Paul says, because of these sinful actions in our sinful nature, we were deserving of God's wrath. Now, it's important for me to say something here. Because being a Christian means you have been forgiven, but it also assumes that to be forgiven, you have examined your life and the way you live. You've acknowledged your sins and your trespasses, and you've repented of your sins. That means that you've turned away. Basically, you've made a U-turn from that type of behavior. And it assumes that, that since the Bible says we are all sinners, something that we have to 
recognize that we don't just sin once and ask for forgiveness and never sin again, but that we, unfortunately, we regularly fall into sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors, sinful actions, sinful words, that it assumes that we will regularly examine our lives, looking for our sins and confessing those sins and repenting, turning away from them. And so Paul tells us that God, in his great love and mercy for us, when we come to faith in him, he makes us alive in Christ. We're no longer spiritually dead. That's good news. So what does it mean to be alive in Christ? What, what does it mean? So the, the rest of the chapter, Paul gives us a lesson in practical theology about what the identity of a follower of Christ looks like and is. And there's three things that come out of this second chapter that I want to focus on. The first thing he tells us is that being alive in Christ means you're saved by grace. Listen to what Paul writes. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I want you to see something in this passage. This is really important. First, our salvation is and was and will always be Purchased only one way, by the sacrificial death of Jesus. His death paid the price that you and I owe for the penalty of our sinfulness. But it's not just his death that's important. It is also in his resurrection that God demonstrates that the power of sin and death are defeated. Those things cannot hold us back. And since the penalty is paid for us by Jesus, death and the power that sin and death hold on us are defeated by God's raising Jesus back to life. Our salvation then, this is important, is totally out of our hands. There is nothing you can do, nothing I can do to be saved by God, to have our sins forgiven, to be given the promise of eternal life. There is nothing that you have done or will do or ever could do to save yourself. It's all done by Jesus. You just need to receive it. And so thus Paul concludes this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, I know people struggle with knowing that we've been saved by grace and not by doing good works. If you ever ask somebody, you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Well, you know, 
I think I've lived a pretty good life, i.e., I think I've done enough good things to get me into heaven, but that doesn't get you into heaven. You can never do enough good to get into heaven because the sins that you and I commit, that honestly that we'll commit today, will always outweigh the good deeds you and I can do. So we need a savior. We need one who can save us and a perfect sacrifice. And it's Jesus and his death on the cross paid the way for our salvation. And when we believe in it, when we believe in him, we receive that gift. We are saved. But again, people struggle with this. I ran across this story. It's pretty funny. Um, There was a article in Newsweek just, just about a year ago. Uh, a woman named Beatrice Fiduck, uh, she decided that as she aged, she would write her own obituary. You know, sometimes people do that. And she decided as she wrote this obituary that she would actually write it as her resume for entrance into heaven. Interesting idea, right? So uh, she passed away at the age of 94 a year ago, uh, and uh, somehow, uh, I guess her, her relatives submitted it to the local paper, and they printed it, and it starts this way. Dear Lord, please accept my application for eternal life. Uh, my resume is as follows. She divided her obituary into sections like real resumes. There were objectives. There were references, there were, was her, her education and training, her experience, her volunteer work, her hobbies. Beatrice gave a summary of her life beginning when she was born in 1927. Uh, she talked about uh, those that she left behind, her daughter, Michelle, and her husband, and their, uh, her granddaughter, and nieces and nephews. And she said as uh, she left them behind as there were no openings in heaven yet for them. And then she goes on and shares her memory saying, Lord, you know that as a teacher, I never had any teacher's pets. Rather, I put my heart into my teaching those with learning challenges or difficult family situations. It was here that I feel I did my best work. I also continued volunteer work, knitting scarves for underprivileged children. And summing up, she added, Lord, I hope that you will find that I have met my objectives and deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me for further discussion on my qualifications. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, Beatrice, that's not how you get to heaven. You can be the best person in the world. You can be the, the stereotypical Mother Teresa or the stereotypical Billy Graham, the people that we would all say were good enough to get into heaven. And both of them would say, it's not by how many good things I did on this earth. So to be alive in Christ means that you're saved by grace. And so we, we need to embrace that truth. We're saved by grace, not by what we do. But before I go on to the next section, I, I want us to look at verse 10 because verse 10 says something, and, and this is where I think people get things reversed, where they say, well, I, I, I got to do good deeds to get into heaven. Because verse 10, Paul says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right. Paul wants us to know that believing in Jesus and being saved by grace should transform our lives. 
It, it should translate in the fact that we begin to follow Jesus and we begin to understand what's important to him and what breaks his heart and what he's passionate about. And those, in some degree or another, should become things that we are interested in. And so we do do good works. We do do things that bless other people, that bless God, that help expand the kingdom of God because we recognize that we've been blessed by God in so many ways. We want to be a blessing to others. You think about all the people that you see that are serving in here today in this building that you see maybe serving regularly. They've recognized that God's blessed them and they want to use their time, their talents, and their treasure to be a blessing to you and to be a blessing to God. And I would challenge you this. If you're not serving, if you're not recognizing that you've been blessed to be a blessing, you're, you're not stepping into your full identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. The second thing that Paul points out in this second chapter is this, that we've been reconciled to God. Let's go back and see what he says, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So that was a long chunk of scripture. If you wanted to just focus on one thing, it's where it says he reconciled both of them to God through the cross. So Paul goes into great length to explain how both Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to each other, but most importantly, have been reconciled to God. They've been made friends with God. So this is important for us to grasp because being a Christ follower isn't all about me and God. It's not a solo affair. It's not a lone ranger thing. You know, being a Christ follower means that we're connected with all Christ followers in this room and online and in the greater world. Anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ is part of the family of God. That's important for us to understand. We've been reconciled to God. So that means that we can't isolate ourselves, that we can't just go it alone. We're spiritually connected, and our reconciliation to God means we're connected to each other. Paul says there is peace between us all. So think about the implications of that. 
We live in a, in a very divided time in history. But in Christ, we've been reconciled to one another. So that means that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of something bigger, even if we have different political views, even if we have different uh, congregational views when it comes to the different branches of churches that are out there, even if we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, even if we have different personality types, regardless of whatever it is that we tend to separate people into, in Christ, we don't get that option. We're united in Christ. And so that means we need to act like we're reconciled. We need to live that out. Even if somebody doesn't agree with your positions or the personalities you follow or your politics, we are supposed to be one in Christ because he has reconciled us to him. And that's important for us to grasp and live out. See, being reconciled to God means we're no longer objects of God's wrath because of Jesus. That means we're no longer enemies. We're his friends. And that's a blessing. And the implication is we're supposed to bless others by making peace with each other and keeping peace. Because Christ has reconciled us to God, Paul concludes with something very important. We have access to God the Father by the one spirit. So I, I think this should cause us all to reflect on the divisiveness that's in our culture right now. Because this second, because this, this scripture is calling us to unity in Christ. And it's interesting, in another letter Paul wrote, the second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, he, he talks about how you and I, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents somebody else. As Christians, we represent Jesus. Whether you have thought about that or not, you represent him. And so think about how you live your life, how you, the words you speak, the actions you commit, the thoughts you think, you, the way you behave. Is it the kind of behavior that a representative of Christ should do? Now look, it's not all about being good. It's about being in a relationship with God. We represent him. We've been blessed to be a blessing to others, and we need to recognize that we do that in a way that honors him. That's, that's part of what it means to be reconciled to God. Finally, he tells us to be alive in Christ means we're welcomed into the family of God. So let me look at this last passage. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy family. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So, since our reconciliation to God also means that we've been reconciled to one another, you probably saw this coming. Being alive in Christ means 
that you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of God's family. You may not be really connected to your earthly family, your, your biological family, but it's important that you recognize that as a follower of Jesus, you're connected to the family of God, and, and we need to lean into those relationships and seek to honor them and bless them and, and help them flourish. So this is what you need to know. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong here. You belong to God. You are welcomed here, and you're welcomed into God's family. You are valuable. You are important to God and to all of us. Being a part of God's family says that you're part of something much bigger, something that has history because it was built on the ancient teachings of the prophets in the Old Testament and the ancient teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. Paul says we're joined together as a people. We, we become not a physical temple, but a, a human, living, breathing temple of God where we worship God and where the Spirit of God dwells. We're part of God's family. So what does all this mean? You know, being saved by faith, being reconciled to God, being a part of God's family those are things that we need to recognize that are part of our identity as a follower of Jesus. And it's, it's not something passive that just happens to us. It's something that we actually actively lean into. I think about it this way. You know, um, if you're alive in Christ, that does mean you believe in Christ. But, but belief is much more than a thought that says, hey, I believe in Jesus and who he said he was. It's more than just a thought in your head. Belief in Jesus translates into following Jesus and following what he modeled and what he taught. So being alive in Christ, I think, has some responses. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I, I want to give you some responses for you to think about. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I would encourage you to lean into him. The first thing, and I, I talked about this on the front end, if you're a, if, to be alive in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus requires repentance. When Jesus started his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is here because he brought the kingdom of God to earth. So that means we need to examine our lives. We need to confess our sins. And when we recognize that sinful behavior, we don't just keep pursuing it, we make a U-turn. We turn the other way. Now that's gonna be hard, because some of us have some, some areas of sin that we continue to struggle with. And that's okay. But it's important that you find another follower of Jesus that you can take into your confidence and share with them the struggle that you have and ask for encouragement and support and prayer for you. So being alive in Christ is going to require repentance. Being alive in Christ is, is going to require also obedience. If you're going to follow him, you've got to obey him. When one of the most important steps of following Jesus is one of the things that he told his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He says, if you're going to be my follower, you need to be baptized. Because that's a public sign to the world that you've set yourself apart from the culture of this world, from the, from the, 
the one uh, who is Satan, you've set yourself apart and you've said, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to put a picture up here behind me. You know, we do baptisms in the winter in here with warm water. And uh, in the summer, we do baptisms in the brook with nature's water. All right. We're actually going to have some baptisms uh, next month. And so if you've never been baptized, you should. Not because I say it so, but because God's word says so. It's identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. It's really that first step of obedience. And so look, if you've, become a, if you've been a follower for years and you've never done it, it's time, okay? Now, whenever I talk about baptism, people ask me questions, okay? Uh, first, I would encourage you to go to our website to the next, what's next tab. You can scroll down. You can go on to baptism there. You can uh, find a, another page that you can link to about things about baptism if you're interested. But people ask me some questions about baptism. For instance, parents say, uh, you know, when can my children be baptized? Well, here's what we, we recognize. In Scripture, everybody who was baptized was cognitively mature enough to communicate. They were intellectually mature enough to say, I believe in Jesus and want to follow them. So uh, when your child is old enough to communicate that to you and then to uh, one of our staff members, then, then that's when it's time to consider that they be baptized. Because, you know, Scripture tells us that was a condition, that you believed in Jesus and wanted to follow them, all right? So uh, here at Valleybrook, we don't baptize infants or small children. We do a, a prayer of dedication. In other words, uh, we, we bring them forward and we pray a blessing over them so that mom and dad will help raise them in the faith and one day they will commit to following Jesus. Now, some of you are also thinking, wow, you know, my parents did that for me when I was little. They had me baptized. That was the tradition of the church that I grew up in. That's the tradition of the church I grew up in too. Mom and dad had me baptized when I was an infant. I mean, obviously I don't remember it, um, and, and, you know, here's the thing. What they did in that faith tradition was a beautiful act of faith on their part because what they committed to and what every parent commits to in, in the infant baptism tradition is to raise the child to believe in Jesus. But again, here's that disconnect, okay? I didn't say I believed in Jesus. <laughs> I was an infant. And so later in life, when I recognize what baptism represents and, and what the scripture says about baptism, I said, I need to be baptized based on my faith, not based on something mom and dad said for me, which was beautiful, but it needs to be mine. I need to own it. So I was, I was baptized by immersion as an adult. We call that believer's baptism because you're old enough to say you believe. So uh, if you have other questions about baptism, I would encourage you, just send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc. I can even send you an ebook that, that really helps you uh, grasp the significance of it. But here's the deal. As a follower of Jesus, he says, this is the thing that identifies you as set apart to follow me. And so it, it's, it's an act of obedience, all right? So Ask God if this is what he wants you to do. I, I can tell you what the answer is going to be already. He, he wants you to. So if you haven't been, you need to do that. And let us know. We'll help you do that.
One last step, okay, as followers of Jesus. Being alive in Christ requires being a blessing to others. Remember that scripture that said, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works? That means we're his handiwork. He's blessed us. Now we need to be a blessing to others. And you can bless others by telling them about the difference that Jesus has made in your life, and you should do that. In fact, as we head to the celebration of Easter, not only are we going to have that Easter egg hunt, we want you to begin now to pray about who you should invite and begin to act on that because you've been blessed and you need to bless other people. But also you need to decide how you can use your life and your, and your time and your talent to serve God. And we have many opportunities here at Valleybrook. In fact, uh, in the coming weeks, we're planning on starting to offer two services. And quite honestly, we're going to need more volunteers. And if you'd like to volunteer at Valleybrook, send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc and we will connect with you and follow up on that. Uh, another way, and we don't talk about this a lot, but is to give financially. You know, we, uh, this ministry is run by your support, your prayer support, and your time support, and also your financial support. And so we teach tithing, that's the giving of 10% of your income, and we want to encourage you to do that. You can give, obviously, online. You probably have heard that. We have offering boxes mounted on the wall. In the back, you can do that. But, but let me give you a story of what your generosity does. So last weekend, if you were here, there was a huge missing component of Valley Brook. Students. They were away on a three-day retreat. And thanks to your generosity, the giving of your offerings and your tithes, we were able to send 14 students and leaders to go away on this retreat. And I want to tell you that they had a significant time while they were there. They were challenged to recognize that they've been made alive in Christ. And they were challenged to take steps of faith. And many of them did. And in fact, one of those students prayed to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. So he, he became part of the family of God. And yeah, that's, that's awesome. Your generosity is making an eternal difference in this world. All right? So... You know, we've been called to lean in and be alive in Christ. And so I, I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And, you know, as I pray for us, I'm going to start off with this, you know, as always. If you've never become a follower of Jesus, today's your time. And I'm just going to give you the opportunity to take some phrases that I give to you and put them in your own words and pray them silently to God in this room or online, wherever you are. Because it's you saying to God, I believe in you and I want to follow you. And so we'll do that. But then I'm going to pray for us that, that we who have come to faith in Christ, who are alive in Christ, would lean in to that. That we would accept the blessing that we've been given and that we would turn around and bless God and bless others. So if you would, bow your heads. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your love for us and for your care for us. And Lord, I recognize that as we come here today that there's probably somebody who's never crossed that line of faith, never put their trust in you and become a follower of you. And so Lord, I, I pray for that person, that man or woman, that boy or girl, whoever they are, that if they want to do that today, that they would just put these phrases in their own words as a prayer to you. So here you go. You can pray these phrases back to God 
Dear God, I believe in you and Jesus. I believe that you sent Jesus to pay the price for my sins. And I believe that he died and rose again. So today I repent of my sins. I accept his forgiveness. And I am going to start following him. As we say amen to that part of the prayer, I, I want to pray for us who are believers, who have been made alive in Christ. Father, we thank you so much that you have saved us. Lord, that you've redeemed us, that you've chosen us. And Lord, we, we thank you that you have reconciled us to God, saved us by faith in what Jesus has done, and that you've made us part of God's family. So, Father, I, I pray for each one of us that we would lean into that, that we would repent when we recognize our sinful nature, that we would seek to follow and obey the teachings of Jesus, not in a good works kind of mentality, but out of a relationship of love and faithfulness. And that, Lord, we would recognize that you have blessed us and we need to bless others. So help us bless you and bless our brothers and sisters in Christ and also those folks who don't know you. Help us be your hands and feet to the rest of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.